What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. delivering the shots and Shamrock would go for the shoot when he was in trouble. It's the opposite of that. And again, Shamrock said he can't go for the shoot because of the injury. Maybe that's the case as he now swivels around, has his back, looking for the Mataleo in Portuguese, the lion kill. Will he be able to kill the New York badass with the rear naked choke here tonight? I'm speaking figuratively, of course. Listen to the crowd behind Shamrock. Look again, his chin is still... His form is not under the chin. Phil just needs to try and fight this out. And Phil has been choked out before without tapping. Phil is struggling, but still maintaining. He's trying to strike. There's a smile on Shamrock's face. He's out. He's out. Frank Shamrock is your strike force world middleweight champion. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling. And you are listening to episode number 264 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast a podcast that you can catch two times a week and download it from wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, or my personal favorite, the Podomatic app. I always say you never know who's going to be on the other end of the line with the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you know that by being a very loyal subscriber to the two-man power trip of wrestling. But... If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we take a little bit of a different turn, but throw the wrestling spin into the episode as we are joined by an MMA legend and a name that is very familiar to both wrestling and mixed martial arts fans, and that is... 
Frank Shamrock, the legend Frank Shamrock, joining us today for a very cool chat where we get to, like I said, step into the octagon and relive some of his greatest fights. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. I know this is something that you've been looking forward to, John. You're a big supporter, big fan of Frank Shamrock. You're just an absolute nut when it comes to his fighting career. And I'd love to hear you kind of go on to the uh, the tangents, if you will, about how deeply you can explore these guys' legendary fighting careers and their past and the places they've trained and the places they've been. But we got to start with the wrestling aspect of this interview. And if you don't know, Frank Shamrock is very close to Mauro Ranallo. And obviously, Mauro Ranallo has been one of the most talked about wrestling personalities of 2017 unfortunately having to leave the wwe and parting ways with them this year after a couple different things couple of perhaps uh situations that were not favorable to both parties but more ronaldo exiting the wwe per- pretty much on top as the number one voice in the wwe system probably the best announcer to come down the pike for professional wrestling in quite a long time, but Frank Shamrock and Mauro Ronaldo are about as close as close is going to get, and we get an excellent view of where Mauro Ronaldo is at these days, uh, both, I guess, professionally and as well as emotionally, and we get a real good look into what the future is going to hold for Mauro Ronaldo uh, from somebody who's going to know just as good, perhaps, as Mauro's going to know. And I think that is really cool, but Frank Shamrock's wrestling ties, obviously his brother Ken Shamrock, and growing up in the Lions Den and the uh, the training, and we hear all about his wrestling background. But, John, I want to welcome you in here and give us a little bit of a brief synopsis of the fighting aspect of this interview, something that I know you love diving deep into. And when we can get somebody who's a crossover star like a Fra- Frank Shamrock, it never hurts. And it's always cool to kind of switch it up a little bit. And we've talked to fighters before who have had the wrestling background and the wrestling ties and it's always cool to get the uh, the aspect of is wrestling and MMA are they on the same level or is wrestling maybe a little bit of a harder profession to get into? But John, why don't you talk a little bit about this Frank Shamrock interview and what we have to look forward to with the legend himself, Frank Shamrock? Yes, Chad, rocking and rolling here at the two man power trip of wrestling, and we're back and back in a huge way as we welcome in. One of the all-time greats, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time, the first real complete MMA fighter, of course, talking about Frank Shamrock. Now, Chad, like you mentioned, and like you know, I'm about to mention, we are primarily a big-time pro wrestling show, obviously, but we do have MMA guys on from time to time, and obviously... MMA, like you said, is more my wheelhouse than your wheelhouse. But you know, you're a pretty big fan. I would consider myself a, a big fan for sure of the MMA world. Definitely a huge fan of Frank Shamrock, aka the Legend, as he can simply be referred to as. But you know, it's awesome to get some of these MMA guys on. Obviously, you know, we had on Ken, his brother, in our early days, Ken Shamrock. We had on Dan Severn. We've had on Matt Riddle. We've had on King Mo. I mean, we've had on quite a few MMA guys with some pro wrestling ties. And it's pretty great to talk to Frank Shamrock, not only about his legendary MMA career, 23 wins, you know, countless opponents that he beat that are, you know, considered some of the greatest of all time. 
you know, just out of the fighter of the 90s, just one of the greatest of all time, without a shadow of a doubt. But it's also great to talk to him about, you know, pro wrestling as well, and talk to him about Mauro Ranallo, and talk to him about the relationship with Mauro Ranallo, obviously being a best friend of his for a very long time. And then, of course, we had to talk about the Mauro situation, the bullying, you know, what WB was all about with Vince, their culture, obviously the JBL situation. But, you know, before I kind of roll back to that, I just I just wanted to mention that, you know, this is mostly a positive look, obviously, at his career. He was such an awesome guy, such a great interview. And when you talk to him away from the interview, what a sweetheart of a guy. Had some great conversations with him. Could not be nicer. And it's funny when you look at him, it's like, wow, what a nice guy. You know, he's not that big. And then you really think about it. He could probably kill me with, you know, basically one hand tied behind his back. He'd just absolutely kill you. He's one of those guys that uh, you don't want to piss off. You know, you don't want to make him mad. And you just hope that nobody up there in uh, WWE made him mad in any way. And we definitely do talk about that in the interview but to you you know to talk about his career just a little bit here what an awesome career he had memorable memorable fights go back to japan you go back to pancrase the king of pancrase we talk about boss rutin we talk about minoru suzuki who oh by the way is still dominating the wrestling scene in new japan and we definitely talked to frank about that how suzuki was then we got a lot of awesome funny stories from him about that how suzuki is now too so pretty cool stuff obviously his relationship with boss now has grown into something very very cool and they're, they're great friends they had three epic fights in pancrase so it's cool to see the evolution of these guys and cool to see where they are now and of course you know talking about frank and talking about his career be remiss not to mention the UFC stuff obviously a huge career in the UFC basically left there you know it wasn't really enough money wasn't really enough competition he was just the man at that point and there was nobody that was his equal now guys copy him they study him they analyze him and they kind of do what he did and adapt and learn and become a thinking man's fighter and really really kind of dissect the business more so than any other and that's what they got a lot of guys are doing today and kind of copying that Frank Shamrock style and that Frank Shamrock mentality. So awesome stuff on UFC. Obviously, you know, all his wins beating Jeremy Horn and, of course, beating Tito Ortiz and arguably the greatest fight in the history of the UFC. You know, he was the middleweight champion then. Now you would know him as the light heavyweight champion as they changed the name of the title to match all the weight classes. But still, nonetheless obviously probably the greatest light heavyweight championship match in history arguably the greatest ufc match ufc fight ever so awesome awesome stuff and of course we talk about the fight that never happened as well his fight with ken shamrock who is his adopted brother obviously there was some bad blood with them for many many years obviously you know this fight was supposed to happen a few times but never did. We do go into that in depth, and I thought that was a really cool part of the interview. And a little bit of a funny part as well, I'm mentioning, you know, why he thought he would win and how he would win. So that's really cool as well. And of course, last but not least, a fantasy fight that we talked to him about, which we kind of go a little bit more in depth than just a fantasy fight. But we talk about what would happen if Frank Shamrock fought JBL. So all great stuff. You're really, really going to enjoy this one. We go, you know, quote unquote, out of our zone a little bit for this one, and we go more into the MMA world. But we do talk a lot of pro wrestling with the legend himself, 
Frank Shamrock Chad. Take it away, buddy boy. Definitely not a huge stretch at all for us. Of course, you named a couple great interviews, but one of my personal favorites with the MMA fighters who have gone into professional wrestling, and go back and look for this one, folks. We had the ability to talk to Don Fry back in 2015, and what a crazy episode that was. That was a uh, an early biggie for us, but it's just very funny when you listen back to it to hear the 10,000 different things that Don Fry was doing in the background while talking to us, but all the while managing to make us laugh and tell some pretty intense stories in the process. So definitely check that one out, but this was so awesome with Frank Shamrock. Really hope you enjoy it. Go out and support Frank, possibly one of the nicest guys that we've dealt with. He just was so accommodating, and it's, uh, it's a real testament to him and the professional that he is but go out and support Frank Shamrock and also go out and support Mauro Ranallo and all the great things that he has coming about. He's definitely an asset to all the sports that he does commentary for, and we definitely are rooting for you, Mauro. So please support all of the endeavors that you see coming from both Mauro and Frank Shamrock. And, John, we're approaching a huge couple of weeks here for the two-man power trip. We're getting ever so closer to Richmond, Virginia on May 19th and May 20th for the Mid-Atlantic Wrestle Expo featuring Arn Anderson. And, of course, if you're coming, we'll be hosting a Q&A on the 19th down in Richmond as part of a huge Legends Dinner. But all that information is on our Facebook page as well as the Facebook page for the Mid-Atlantic Wrestle Expo. So go on over to Facebook.com and find all that information and get your behinds to Richmond, Virginia and experience the Mid-Atlantic Wrestle Expo with just dozens of amazing performers. Now, John, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the legend, Frank Shannon. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Ray Mysterio Jr., Jeffrey McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there, so please check them out. Also, while on the internet, go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com is your superstore. If you are a super fan, and you can please check out our page while you're there, you can check out Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell, and so, so many others. Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. May 19th and May 20th, we hit the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Expo in Richmond, Virginia, then... Follow us to New Jersey as we hit Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, he is a former UFC middleweight champion. 
He is the former king of pancrates. He is the first man ever in MMA history to win titles in the UFC, WEC, and Strike Force. He is simply known as the legend. He is Frank Shamrock. Please enjoy. For sure, great intro. I appreciate uh, appreciate all the goodies there. <laughs> you make it easy when you got a lot on the old resume to uh, to follow. So uh, we appreciate all the work you've done in your career. <laughs> My pleasure. So basically, well, let's get started here. I know uh, one thing for sure is that uh, there, there's always a lot of great, great and crazy stuff going on in your world. Uh, whether it is the announcing or whether you're being an advocate for something. But I kind of want to start with a wrestling tie-in, if we can. And that is uh, your affiliation with Mauro Ronaldo. And obviously, you guys just called an amazing card a few weeks back in Japan. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts, if we could, about the whole Mauro Ronaldo situation and kind of how he uh, had to exit WWE, unfortunately, uh, and all that stuff that transpired. And actually, most importantly, how was uh, getting the team back up with Mauro? Uh, well, it was fantastic. I mean, working with Morrow makes, makes uh, the color commentary job extremely easy because he's just so good and so knowledgeable. And, and uh, yeah, so that, that part was really good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Morrow is, besides one of my very close friends, he's also my client, so we, we manage his brand and his business as well. And so we saw him through the, the WWE thing. And, and uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it was really just, you know, Moro's very special and very specialized and extremely talented. And, um, you know, he needs the right platform to shine and to, to do him, you know, to be himself, much like a fighter. You know, you kind of get out of the way, you let him do his thing. And uh, that it wasn't working for him at WWE. So, you know, he decided to move on and, you know, do more and different stuff. But, uh, I mean, his desire is to call every combat sport and to really, you know, secure legacy of being that guy that can do everything and currently he's the only guy that can do everything and is doing everything um and i think i mean just the highest level of talent is it's just amazing when you get him on the microphone he he's one of the most special guys that when you get him behind the microphone you uh you know something big's happening he gives that almost like the howard cosell feel that big fight feel 
whenever he's behind the microphone. And obviously, a lot of his issues are very well documented, and he is uh, an absolute advocate for those who don't have a voice, uh, who share the same uh, problems that he does. Uh, and he's done such an amazing job in, in getting over a lot of humps. But what do you kind of think that culture that he's leaving um, from the WWE? Obviously, there's you know, a lot that's been said. There's books that have come out recently, almost uh, almost too coincidentally at the same time. Uh, but what do you think about that culture that he was leaving uh, and getting back to something more positive, like uh, you know, behind the microphone and doing what he does best, and that's calling MMA and mixed up martial arts uh, fights? Yeah, well, I think that um, yeah, I don't know if it's so much culture. It's just you know, different different folks. You know, we're Morrow's super intense, super focused. You know, to him, the show is the most important thing, and and um, you know, that, that's it doesn't have the same value, you know, over there um, as in other companies. You know, they're more interested in other, you know, messages, other things, other brands, products, or whatever. So and it's really just different people, you know. Uh, but I think I love what WWE does, both in storytelling and messaging and how they impact, you know, the world with their product. Um, and I don't see Moro's strength far from, wrestling itself, because it really is how he got started. It's his first love. So with that said, I mean, it goes it goes for every work environment. You want to be respected. You want to be treated well. You want to be acknowledged. And you want to, you know, you want to shine at what you do. And, and you know, the machine over there is not built for that. The machine is built differently. So it's just wrong mechanic, wrong machine. But, you know, my job is to take care of him, help him fulfill his dreams, and, you know, help guide him through the journey. And, you know, it didn't fit, so I moved on. And, you know, a lot of wrestling fans, if they don't, you know, recognize you from the amazing things you've done in your own professional career, they might remember you from uh, ringside WrestleMania 25 in the middle of the Mickey Rourke, uh, Chris Jericho, and the legend fiasco that was uh, WrestleMania 25. But also, uh, John and I were kind of joking about it as we were preparing. Uh, the one thing that everybody kind of, uh, you know, kind of had a nod to is that, uh, Chris Jericho might have been worried that Frank Shamrock was going to whoop his ass if he got out of line. I think everybody was kind of either hoping for uh, something to happen or what, but uh, always cool to look back at WrestleMania 25 and see you sitting there ringside with Mickey Rourke. Oh, yeah, that was my first WrestleMania, too. And to go in like it's Mickey's strong man. You know, he's like, listen, if anybody, if anybody tries anything, I want you to start knocking people out. I'm like, okay, Mickey, thank you. And I think we're going to a wrestling show, but I'm down. So yeah, he he's just he's such a dear friend of mine, and it was a really important moment to him. So I was happy to be there. Plus, it was my first WrestleMania, so just you know what an experience, front row, having the whole thing, flying and you know Vince's jet, and just doing the you know Hollywood experience mixed with WrestleMania. It, it was pretty special. Oh, that was so cool. And that was one of the you know the key factors of that WrestleMania was the, you know, the wrestler coming out, dominating how it did at the box office. You know, obviously, when a wrestling movie is in the discussion for an Academy Award, I mean, that's just absolutely unbelievable. But I just I want to take one step back tomorrow and kind of tie it into your announcing. How does he make you better as an announcer? Because obviously you guys and your chemistry is off the charts, but how does Morrow and being such a great, uh, you know, play-by-play guy help you as a great color guy? Well, it's the same as in acting. It's the same as in, um, you know, sparring. When you have somebody who is, you know, equal or better than you and, and really knows how to move the ball around or knows how to move the emotion or the subject or whatever, 
it just it, it it forces you to be on your toes. It forces you to perform, you know, at your highest. This is what the great actors talk about when they work with each other. Is you know, there's this energy that you know it's so good. You have to be the best, and Moro brings that every. That's why people love Moro. He's there a thousand percent, all in, every single time until he's falling over dead, and. You know, that type of energy you have to keep up with or he'll consume you. So it just pushes you to be your best. And he's so knowledgeable. He's so good. He's so witty and fun. And if you can't work with Morrow and be amazing, then you, you got no business, you know, in that game at all. And obviously, Morrow and you work together, not only Ryzen, but Strike Force as well. And you guys just have an awesome dynamic and an awesome chemistry. And might say something, you know, about uh, JBL and maybe, you know, not being able to mesh with Morrow might be more on him than on, than on Morrow, really. Yeah, and, I mean, it's just different. I think it's a different culture of, of respect and, and appreciation. You know, we, we're, you know, at, working for CBS, working for Showtime, you work at that level, it's a very high level of respect. You know, you're carrying the network message. There's a lot of, you know boys and, you know, make sure we do it right and, you know, a lot of support for that. Um, and in the wrestling world, it's not. It doesn't need to be. <laughs> you get to the next show, you tell the story, the story's great, people like it. So it just is, I think it's a different world of appreciation of value. And, and you know, Moral, Moral does nothing else. You know, we go back to our lives, we go back to our existences of, of family and, and, and worlds, but this is Moral's existence. He does nothing but work. So for him, if it's not the best, if it's not comfortable, fun, excellent, family, friends, all that, then it's like, why would he go to work, you know, if, it, if that's his life? So, but he's a special guy, you know, to him, you know, and we told WWE that he's a special guy. You, know, you have to, you know, treat him specially, look after him, you know, be kind to him. You have to look after the guy. But he deserves it. He's earned it. He has the talent. And, you know, but he'll find more homes. You know, we've had enjoyed a wonderful experience with Showtime and CBS and, you know, I mean, Morrow's called anything and everything you can think of in combat sports. And his whole goal is, like I said, be the guy. Call everything. You know, Morrow's the guy when a show falls apart on network television, you can call in 24 hours and he'll get on a plane, fly all night and save your show. And it'll be amazing. And nobody else can do that. Like, it just doesn't exist. So he's that guy. Definitely, uh, definitely true. He's the, he's the best in the business for sure. At you know at whatever he's calling. But I read an interesting quote from you, and I was wondering if you know if you really think it's true or not. You said pro wrestling is probably harder than MMA. Do you really think that re- pro wrestling may be harder than MMA or tougher? Totally. Yeah, just tougher in that. <clears throat> I mean, I had contracts to do pro wrestling, but when I did the numbers. You know, I'm going to do you know 150 shows with 150 performances, and it's like you you know you're on this just grind of performing. That's really challenging, challenging physically, challenging, you know, spirit, like all the things. It's challenging. Um, and when I weighed those things, I was like, well, I could fight three times a year, make a couple million dollars, or I could work you know 200 dates a year and make the same amount of money. And it's like, well, that makes no sense whatsoever. You know, why wouldn't I work? you know, three dates or two dates a year. So it just became a value proposition for me. And I realized watching my brother go through it, it's a lot harder than everyone thinks. And it's a real, it's a lot, it's like what Moral's doing. You've got to commit your whole life, every day, every meal, every show, everything is about the performance, the moment, the event, the storyline, and then getting yourself to the next city to keep it going. I was like, that's, that's real work. It's 
you know, I never, I never could commit to that. And, you know, speaking of your brother, obviously great pro wrestler, tremendous MMA fighter yourself, obviously the legend himself, but what is your relationship like with Ken nowadays? Uh, it's the same. We've, we've, you know, healed each other, I hope, and, and opened a good door for, you know, a relationship and stuff. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, now we're all old and retired and have little to talk about but the old days. So I think we've just kind of settled down and we're growing into each other. Do you look fondly back on those Lions uh, lion Den days and him training you and things like that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I just, I, I loved it all. And, you know, it was, I think I'm probably one of the last guys to go through a very traditional, you know, development trajectory. You know, I like went to Japan. I like lived in a dojo. I mean, I did all the stuff you could ever imagine. Um, but it's like that journey really made me, you know, a, a, a complete fighter and a complete person and, you know, really helped develop me. Um, so, yeah, I, I loved the journey. It was, it was crazy, but, you know, it allowed me now to do all this stuff that I, everyone thinks is impossible and ridiculous. Absolutely. And your time in Japan is uh, pretty well documented and, and pretty legendary as far as Pancrase is concerned. What do you think about your time over there in Japan? Did you, did you really enjoy living over there? Did you enjoy the culture? I loved it. I mean, I honestly, truly loved it. I mean, you know, I came from the streets of, of California and from broken home, and I never really had much. So to see the the organization of it, the structure of it, you know, to be a part of the the movement, you know, and you could you could feel it. It was a movement over there. You know, this was stuff. You know, they were finding out. You know, each event, like what it was going on and techniques, and you know, the world was kind of converging into this moment. So. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it as much then as I do now because I was a young guy and I'm, you know, young and dumb. But as I look back, I realize, you know, most people, very few people, will ever go through an experience like that. You know, see the be, be at the birth of the sport, contribute at that level. You know, be able to be a part, you know, of the original group and the camaraderie and the risk and, you know, it's like, it's like going to war, you know, and. You know, only your body knows what happens, and we're, we kind of did that thing where there's only a handful of us that, you know, watched it all happen, were a part of it, you know, contributed, and, and then get to see the results. Definitely, and one of your kind of big rivals over there, Patrick, I don't know how much you follow uh, the pro wrestling game in New Japan, but Minoru Suzuki, an old rival of yours, still, you know, at 47 years old, still one of the best pro wrestlers in the world. What are your kind of memories of uh, Minoru Suzuki are actually not working, fighting him. Oh, man, he was so smooth, so cool. Just the epitome of coolness. And um, my my memories of him were, uh, I learned to brush my teeth before every match from Minoru Suzuki. He'd always <laughs> brush his teeth. I was like, wow, that's very thoughtful of him. And he finally explained to me how, my, how he breathes better and how it's so much more of a better vascular experience. So I, I took that hmm. from him. Um, and I also took the the idea or the hope that he would go through whole matches and never mess up his hair. Like his hair would remain the same. After like 20 minutes, I'd be like, oh, like if I could get technique so strong that I could do that, I would look amazing at the end of it. So he gave me a whole you kind of, you know, idea of, of presentation and sort of, you know, in combat and then the teeth thing. So I had a lot of good memories. 
And he was one of my first teachers. You know, when I first first got to Japan and I was living at the dojo and I had no idea what I got myself into or what was going to happen. And and he was one of the first guys. He spoke very little English at the time. He was one of the first guys that broke down the mechanics of the game and helped me with some very fundamental things that helped me beat Boss Rutan and not get my face kicked off too many times. Um, so he was instrumental in my whole career. Uh, but, yeah, I can't believe he's still going. Yeah, and he's uh, really, really still successful over there. I don't know how much, you know, you follow the, the New Japan wrestling team, but it's crazy how he's still going and he's still one of the top acts. Yeah, I just I think it's amazing. And he had a great style of wrestling and, and you know, mochismo performance that I, I – it just it resonates, I think, yeah, to this day. But he's still – He's still going. God knows how. And you mentioned their boss, Rudin, who obviously, you know, you fought, uh, I think, three times. And, you know, you lost some, you won one. But what was your kind of overall outtake on boss, Rudin, being one of the few American, you know, not Americans, but one of the few uh, gaijins over there in Japan while you and Ken were there as well? Uh, well, I, I, I love boss the moment I fought him and met him and stuff. Um, and, and we developed just a, the nicest friendship. And still to this day, you know, I produced him and Morrow's podcast, and so I see him once a week, and there's been a tremendous friendship. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was we were all crazy back then because we were all deathly afraid and had no idea what was going on. So, you know, anybody that kind of spoke English and was halfway decent and cool, you kind of ended up hanging out with. We we developed a really nice friendship that extended for three fights, ironically enough. Um, but we got to know each other real good. Definitely. Three legendary fights in Pancreas against Boss. Obviously, he's one of the best ever. You're one of the best ever. And it's funny that you know Ken's over there, too, and there's always speculation and rumors. How close were you to ever fighting Ken in an actual MMA fight? Pretty close. Like real close. I worked on it for almost two years and had, um, and then it just it fell apart one day, unfortunately. Uh, which I think I'm, I'm glad it did. Secretly glad. It was because you're weird at the end of the day. Uh, but everyone was really into it. It was definitely a moneymaker for a while, but unfortunately, yeah, it didn't happen. I would have bet money it was going to, though. Hmm. Now, this might be a crazy question or a dumb question. Who do you think would have won? Oh, definitely me. Yeah, <laughs> I waited. I waited an appropriate time until Ken was both old and um, not as good as me. <laughs> as as a good pro wrestling story should go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. You know. You know. Kind of moving on just a little bit into you know your time in the UFC. I know obviously you were dominant in rings in Japan. Uh, had a great fight in Valley Kudo, Japan against Ensign Anal, but. In UFC, it's kind of where you really, really made a huge, huge name for yourself and really expanded, you know, the quote, the quote unquote, the legend. What was it like, kind of, in the UFC at that point, as you're slowly kind of building yourself up, and then you become the, you know, the middleweight champion, aka the light heavyweight champion. Uh, I mean, it was really cool because the sport was very young, and the old owners, um, old owner Bob, was very much a music guy, very much a talent, you know, driven, artistic type guy. So he had a great vision for the sport, and it wasn't a sport then, it was a spectacle. He had a great vision for the spectacle <laughs> that morphed into a sport. Um, but it was very friendly, very much, you know, hey, can you beat this guy? Oh, I think so. Okay, I'll make the match. Like, it was 
really, you know, about as basic as you can get. Uh, but it was very exciting because, you know, we knew that, you know, what we were doing was very different. We knew that it was, you know, a lot of people didn't like it, but, um, you know, we had this very firm belief in, in its development and its use and, and, and its applications and stuff. So, yeah, it was just cool. It was neat to be there. And then it was also very scary because, you know, everybody from around the world was sort of gathering their eyes on it and, you know, marching over towards it. So we were, you know, constantly getting, you know, new new styles and new dangers and new things to kind of worry about and study. Uh, and as a young man, it's just very, very intimidating, but very exciting study. And with the UFC at that point, you know, like you said, it was kind of in its infancy, kind of really growing. And you were really one of the first, obviously, you know, you got Hoyce Gracie, you got your brother, but you were really the first one to kind of step beyond those guys. And everyone kind of said like, you know, for example, you were the fighter of the decade in the nineties. It was almost like, wow, Frank is just, he's better than the other one, his style, the way he adapted, the way he learned, the way he adds different things to his game. Did you think at that point that you were the best fighter in the world? Uh, well, as a fighter, I did. Um, but, you know, as a style, which, which eventually became, you know, the first complete style, um, you know, I knew where I was not sufficient or the best or where my style was weak. Uh, but because the sport wasn't developed, I was still able to be the most complete. Um, and that continued to develop all the way until I retired, my ability and the completeness of my style. Um, but, yeah, I was the first guy, the first super nerd to put everything together and then apply it. And um, everyone was just a step behind. I think they were still trapped in their singular martial arts style and in their kind of culture of martial training. No one had really opened up their minds yet to tie all the uh, components together. And boy, did you. I mean, obviously, beating Kevin Jackson, you beat Jeremy Horn, beat John Lober. But the big win and possibly one of the greatest fights in the history of the UFC. You beat Tito Ortiz, another uh, pretty much you know big time legend or at least huge name in the sport. Did it feel good to get that win and kind of be associated with being possibly the greatest fight of all time? Very much so. Yeah, it was that was you know by far my best physical performance you know of my career. Um, but the weight advantage, I mean, you had twenty five pounds on me. Uh, the way the rule setup was, a lot of things were kind of in my disfavor. But I had a had a really strong strategy, and I also had a really developed game, which Tato just didn't quite understand yet. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I still look back at that. You know, my striking wasn't the best, and my flows were kind of off. But, you know, I, that fight still stands today, you know, as what modern MMA should look like because it was the first real, you know, modern fight, I think. Uh, but, yeah, I, I loved it, and it was the hardest physical work I've ever done in any contest. And going back and watching that fight, I mean, it's an unbelievable fight, but I look at him and I look at you, it almost looked like two guys in two different weight classes, and then you really look oh, at totally. it like, yeah, like it's almost like, wow, I don't, I think this guy may weigh 50 pounds more than this other guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, and nobody really got it until we did the, uh, you know, the photo shoot for the poster, the fight poster, and then they had to stand on an apple block because the height difference is so, you know, vast that it looks silly have me staring up at his giant head. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's a full weight by figure. But it was that time where, you know, he didn't have a complete style or vascular conditioning. You know, I had just, you know, gathered all of that into one, you know, game. 
you know, I also strategically fought him, you know, when he was very popular but also very young, knowing that I could beat him, train him a little bit, he'd tell everybody, you know, how amazing it was <laughs> and how much I taught him. So it was very strategic, my fighting in Pita. It's all about the strategy. It's all about that mental game, too. But... <laughs> it's all about the game, yeah. It's all about the game. You end up leaving UFC at, at that point. You know, you relinquish the title. Was it the lack of competition? Was it a lack of money? Because, like, you know, what really led to the retirement at, at that point? Uh, it was just purely money and timing. You know, the sport was really dying. I was the, you know, biggest star in a in dying sport. Um, and, uh, you know, my vision was, was Hollywood and film and acting and stuff like that. So, you know, I saw an exit, you know, one of my caveats to my T.O. contract was, you know, if I beat him, I, I'd have the option to publicly retire and the rest of my contract would zero. So uh, I went into that with a very specific strategy. I was going to beat Tito. I was going to retire. I was going to become a free agent. I was going to take control of my brand and my vision, and I was going to move it to Hollywood and, you know, go down that path. And uh, so it all worked out. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the main reason why I retired. Just I couldn't, you know, I was making $60,000 a fight. It cost me $24,000 to train and do the fight, and it just didn't make any sense. Yeah, economically, at that point, anyway, obviously now, you know, it's a huge billion-dollar business, but at that point, economically, probably smart to get out of the game. But you do return, obviously, you know, successful in K1, successful in WEC, uh, Elite XC, and obviously Strike Force as well. You became the Strike Force middleweight champion. Did you enjoy your time in Strike Force? Because it seemed like you were the king of Strike Force for a while, especially you know them being in, in the San Jose market a lot. Totally, yeah, I really, really enjoyed the time, and it was me and a friend. You know, Scott Coker was a friend of mine. We've done a lot of work in martial arts, so he didn't know anything about it. So he really, really relied on me in the beginning, and and um, yeah, I just feel like, listen, man, this is a great story. Here's the guy, here's the opponent, here's the thing, here's what we're gonna do. He'd be like, I love it. Let's go do it. So it was very much a, a place where I could be very creative, uh, both with the storyline, the promotion, and the media. Um, and then, yeah, still young enough, performing at a very high level, so I could then also perform. So, yeah, I was, I was the king of San Jose for quite some time, and uh, we we captured quite a bit of market share with that strike force. Oh, big time, big time. I mean, uh, strike force was doing crazy numbers, whether it be uh, you on the card, Nick Diaz, Fedor, Ronda Rousey. It felt like Strikeforce was kind of, uh, you know, catching up to the UFC a little bit anyway. Yeah, yeah, we definitely were. And when we launched the Heavyweight Grand Prix, you know, I think that was the tipping point where, they, you know, they started looking over like we better get rid of these guys or absorb them or, you know, figure out a way to stop that progress. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was high. We we were that we had a good time in the sport because there was a lot of discord and there was a lot of, you know, the sport was kind of professionalizing and a lot of the people weren't, you know, all the way on board of that. It was a really good time to kind of unite, you know, the the athletic community and their, you know, their supporters and stuff. And that was the real secret sauce to strike force. You know, there's a lot of guys that were looking for that stage and it was hard to get on it. Like, you know, except for here, which if you showed up and performed, you know, we, we let you do your thing. Now, with Strike Force and obviously with Nick Diaz, you end up losing to him and then retiring. Was that a bit of a, a passing of the torch for you? Was that that kind of moment for you when you lost? Like, hey, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I've reached the point where I want to retire from the sport. Yeah. 
you know, it was, it was a twofold thing. My my body was was given out, um, and then I'd also reached all the you know, I, mean, I couldn't really do much else. Uh, so there was a lot of you know just wanting to compete, but my body couldn't perform at that level. I didn't want to keep competing if I could be you know close to the best. So just you know, age and time were my time. And as I start to wind it down a bit here, I just have to ask, because obviously, you know, you said you're friends with Scott Coker. Obviously, he's still friends with Scott Coker. Is there any chance, because Bellator seems to be bringing back Fedor. They're bringing back uh, Ken Shamrock. Obviously, he's bringing back your brother a few times. He brought back Hoyt Gracie. He brought back Tito, Rampage, all these guys. Any chance of a Frank Shamrock comeback to Bellator? <laughs> no, none for me. My, my comebacks are all in, uh, in words now. <laughs> You know, what's interesting about your, your career, I mean, obviously you're going to go down regardless of the era. I mean, you'll go down as one of the biggest and brightest MMA stars basically of all time. Do you kind of put yourself on that Mount Rushmore, if you will, of MMA when you really think about maybe the Gracies of the Fedors of the world or the Anderson Silvas? Do you put yourself in that category? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do personally. I hope you know, the, the wallet books all match up, but I'm just very proud of my contribution to the, to the sport itself and to the martial arts stuff. Cause I really saw it as a martial art, you know, and it's developing phase. And, and I really stepped up to try to become a martial arts champion. And I was very proud of that. Um, and, and I'm very proud of the sport itself. You know, it's, it's done what I hoped it would do. And that is influence the world, you know, create more opportunity and, and, you know, create an entertaining concepts for, you know, people to do sporting activities. Now, in your career, is there, you know, something or or someone like that really sticks out as maybe like your most respected opponent or somebody you really really enjoyed the most out of your fights or got the most out of the fight from? Um, I I, I really enjoyed fighting uh, Anthony Noe in uh, Valley Tudo, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for 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 two reasons, it was it was a really tough contest, um, but it was also uh, it, it was a very intimate you know knockdown drag out battle, uh, you know where like we talked earlier, I mean we, we went to war, and you know now even just being around each other, we feel that experience that has happened. Uh, it's just very uniting and very brotherhoodish. So I. Every time I see him, I feel this, this struggle that went on. And the first thing he says is, you know, if I'd have knocked you out, it would have been totally different. <laughs> he has a whole different <laughs> feeling about it. Uh, <laughs> I do a big hug, and I'm like, I know, but it didn't happen. So, uh, But the feeling of that moment still lives with us, and that to me is, is something really powerful and really, you know, I, I can feel that today if I think about it. Now, if I remember correctly, you guys were laughing at one point in that fight. Yeah. What was, what was that, <laughs> laughing at the corner man or, or not laughing at each other, right? Yeah, no, we were laughing at the corner man because um, uh, unbeknownst to Ensign, uh, one of our strategies was that um, similar to Tito, uh, you know, I was going to wear him out with movement and activities. Um, and Maurice Smith, my coach, was in on that. So... Um, you know, a few minutes in the fight, the corner of Ensign's going, yeah, hit him, hit him, hit him. So Maurice starts doing the same thing. Hit him. He likes it. He likes it. Hit him. So then 
uh, Ensign's brother, who's in his corner, and Maurice is in my corner, they start arguing. <laughs> so <laughs> so he's like cursed. So Ensign's brother is cursing at Maurice. Maurice is, you know, cursing. They're having this full-on outside-of-the-fight argument about, you know, the, the cornering. So, we, yeah, we just looked up because it was so weird. And you can hear everything. And, um, you know, I start laughing underneath because I'm hearing all this happening, and I'm trapped underneath him. He's trying to kill me. And it was just so weird to have all this humor and weirdness in this, you know, near-death moment. Uh, yeah, so we, I start laughing underneath him. We both look up, and I look in his eyes. We laugh, and then we go back to, to beating the hell out of each other. That's great. Only in uh, MMA could that happen where two guys about to kill each other. They're laughing at the corner men and then they get back in there and then try to kill each other again. Yeah. It's so, it's so weird. And, and the weirdest thing is I, I can still feel it. Like at that moment we were just told two dudes. Like it was like everything melted. And I just was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then we looked and he's like, Oh my God, I, he had the exact same feeling in his head. And then we just like switch it right back to, Oh, that's right. You're on top of me trying to kill me. And <laughs> I'm going to get out and kill you. <laughs> so, but it's very strange. Definitely crazy. Now, did you like your kind of foray a little bit into pro wrestling with when you were in U style uh, in Japan Nakamura? It was kind of like a work shoot. Did you enjoy pro wrestling at all at that point? I I thought I was going to more, but um, I, I I couldn't get the fighting out of it. So I, I'm, I'm certain for, you know, Nakamura thought it was going to be more of a, a entertaining match. But the minute it started and he smacked me, um, all the, you know, fun, cool-looking stuff went out the window. And I was like, I just got to kill this guy. <laughs> I, you know, my, my problem was, um, you know, I got really good at fighting. It started becoming my nature. And then, you know, the minute I got scared or hurt or hit or whatever. The first thing was, well, I got to kill this guy as quickly as possible. And then everything got messed up. So I thought I would like it more. And the reason I didn't do more is I realized um, I like performing with that, that edge and that intensity and that risk involved. And the rest of it, it's really hard for me unless it's an emotional risk or we're, you know, acting or something like that. And it was definitely, you know, it wasn't the the same Frank Shamrock, if you will, the one, you know, the the killer, you know, who comes out, you know, in the MMA world. But, you know, I got to ask this because when this whole, you know, JBL thing came out and obviously uh, Moro's best friends are Frank Shamrock and Bass Rudin. So it's funny. You just look at it and you think to yourself, hmm, who would win in a, you know, in a fight? And I think I, I'm pretty confident in this answer, but who would win, JBL versus Frank Shamrock? Oh my God! So I, I mean, I would beat up pretty much, you know, everybody in the world. I think JBL is a sweet old guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think unlike most people, I still train every day. I still work out every day, and uh, you know, I'll still smash, you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of uh, other male humans on the planet. He is, you know, he is, he is a big guy, though. You know, big old tough uh, Texan. There, you think, uh, what would the strategy be? Would it be like the Tito Ortiz strategy? You're gonna wear him out? No, no. I've got big guys like that. Now they know how to strike. They just stay on the outside, and you know, they don't have enough speed to to keep up. And and my powers develop such to where, you know, a couple shots and they they all go down. It doesn't matter how big they are. I mean, I thought Kosaka, he was 240. 
you know. And, oh, yeah. And I, I saw guys that are 270, 280. Um, and it's just about how much damage you want to take. You know, what do you want to do to apply the, you know, the action? And I used to tell Bob back in the day, I was like, you know, we had a fight one time to fight Buster Douglas, and he was a big star because he needed money and, you know. And Bob's like, well, can you beat him? Because that's how it used to be. Can you beat him? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what if he hits you? Like, if he hits me, he's going to kill me. I go, but he's never going to hit. I'm going to, you know, here's what I'm going to do. And he'd be like, okay, you know, let's put it together. But uh, it's all what, what, what could happen, what could be the damage. But I look at people. People aren't seniors every night dreaming about killing people in the most efficient way to use your body to do so. So, you know, when I look at people, I look at distance, range, vascular, structure, strength, and, yes, I could probably destroy this man in about 10 seconds. 99% of men look like that to me. Almost the cliche, too, with the bigger they are, the harder they will fall. And uh, that is a pretty good strategy if anybody uh, wants to uh, also dream about killing every night. But, Frank, this has been unbelievable. Thank you so much for taking a walk down memory lane and uh, reliving a lot of these great moments. But as we kind of close the book on the interview, we would love to kind of get your take. What would you say your legacy would be left in the fighting world, and what do you think the Shamrock name means at the end of the day to aspiring fighters looking to uh, reach their own personal goals? Well, I hope at the end of the day my legacy is, uh, you know, about someone that uh, stood for something and, um, you know, tried to do the right thing and, um, you know, use the sport and use the art, respected it. Um, you know, and I think I'll be remembered as the first complete, you know, mixed martial artist, um, you know, we just, just figured it out. And I was a super nerd, and, you know, for whatever reason, I became that guy. That is uh, it's unbelievable, and we thank you so much for coming on tonight. But before we let you go, please share with the listeners uh, where they can find anything and everything in the world of the legend, Frank Shamrock. For sure, yeah. I'm, you know, you can reach me on social media everywhere at Frank Shamrock and, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And, Pretty, I'm pretty on social media, so hit me up. I like to hang out with my fans and do cool stuff. Oh, that's cool stuff. This is amazing stuff, so we appreciate the time tonight, and uh, this is a, a real lot of fun. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Too. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.